The first scenario has to do with establishing relationship. That's what John focused on considerably in the first two chapters. Fellowship with God in the family of God is only possible if we first have established relationship with him through faith in Jesus Christ. In this first scenario, there are two girls, Tina and Vivian. They were both summoned to the principal's office over the loudspeaker system. Will the following girls please report to the principal's office immediately? Tina Kayakpuk and Vivian Payakowski. Tina had never been to the principal's office before. The principal was tall, dressed in a suit and tie, and he wasn't smiling. She was a new student. She was a minority student. She was a young student facing the ultimate authority figure in her young life. And she was fearful, insecure, tentative Tina. On the other hand, Vivian had been to the principal's office many times. She barely glanced up at the tall man standing by the desk, went over to the desk, grabbed a couple pieces of candy from the dish, flounced into a chair and handed a candy to her friend and downed one herself. No, no big deal. She was just as comfortable as could be. What made the difference? I'm sure you figured it out by now. This tall man in the suit without a smile was not only her principal, he was also her dad. She felt very comfortable because of the relationship that she had. And that's the picture of God and mankind. God is the principal over all men. But he is the father only of those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ and become little children of God. We are born into the family of God. Now, in the, last, in the next three chapters, as we move forward, <clears throat> John is going to be shifting more and more to the theme of embracing relationship. And it's as we embrace relationship that we, become, we have an assurance of our salvation. We are secure in Christ, if that's where our faith. And we've been born into the family of God. We're secure. But there are reasons we become insecure. And that is when we don't embrace that relationship. And that brings us to the second scenario. Three men on the way to the annual review. The first was slip, Slipshod, I have a hard time with that one, Slipshod Sherm. You try to say that, chew gum at the same time, it doesn't work. He hadn't even decided if he was going to show. He'd been totally irresponsible for months. He couldn't even find, let alone organize, the material for a defensible presentation. And Sherm's drinking buddy, Sam, was a bird of the same feather. Slothful Sam was gifted at organization. Silver tongue, a glib tongue. But you know, this time, his wait-to-the-last-minute pockets were empty. And he was dreading the annual review. Unlike slipshod Sherm and slothful Sam, 
industrious Ignatius, energetic, dependable, productive, innovative, eager to serve, successful in every area of his life. He couldn't wait to get to the annual exam. What was the difference? They were all three employed by the same employer. Two were insecure while one was brimming with assurance. The difference, one embraced the responsibility of his employment. The other two didn't. And that's the way it is in the Christian life. Some Christians embrace their relationship with the Father, while others seek to avoid, to live independently of the Father. The former lives securely, with genuine ease and assurance, even enthusiasm. The latter live their lives in doubt, insecurity, and shame. Now that's the background. We're dealing with, we've dealt with the issue of security in Christ, assurance with Christ, knowing that we're truly a part of the family, comes as we embrace that relationship. The focus Actually, there's five things I want to identify as features of life in Christ, in the family of God. Beginning at verse 28 of the preceding chapter, chapter 2, we read there, And now little children abide in him. Becoming a Christian begins and ends with Jesus. We're born into the family of God. There's no other way to get in. That's why Jesus said you must be born again. But it doesn't end there. With many Christians, that's as far as it ever goes. And their relationship with the Father is kind of like Jesus is some kind of fire insurance to hopefully get me to heaven. And I believe many uh, who do not abide in Christ are blowing smoke. They're not going to go to heaven when they die because they have never entered into a living relationship that produces new birth in Jesus Christ. The Christian life continues on. It doesn't only begin with Jesus, it continues on. And it's all about him. Now, the Apostle John uses the word abide here. 23 times in five chapters, John uses this word abide. Uh, this, I think, is the key to understanding the second half of what we've been talking about in the Gospel of John. We are secure in Christ. That's relationship. Fellowship. Your joy being full. All that is in the Christian life comes as we abide in Christ. Now, some of your translations will probably say remain uh, or continue. But it really doesn't get to the essence of what abide means. Abide is coming into the living room and dwelling, kicking off your shoes, feeling comfortable because of contact and communion with another person over time. And this is what God asks of us. It's in the imperative mood. It is so critical and important to, important to our Christian life that it's in the form of a command here. This is our part in the equation, to walk with him, to listen to him, to commune with him. It's what John is calling fellowship. 
It's taking up residence with Jesus, living in the awareness of his presence in your life 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And this, in the end, is the number one, I believe, great privilege that God has given to us, not just being born into relationship, but walking with a father that deeply cares in communion with him, moment by moment, day by day. We have access, we have acceptance, and here's how Jesus put it in John chapter 15. John chapter 15, verse, uh, verse 9. As the Father loved me, I also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. Many Christians only know a life as a Christian of performance, of trying to keep a new set of rules, uh, trying to meet these perceived expectations. And it's all about doing. It's not about resting comfortably and being in his presence. One of the consequences of abiding in Christ, according to this text, is that when Jesus appears, we may have confidence and and not be ashamed before him at his coming. This is not an issue of whether or not as a Christian we'll make it to heaven when Jesus comes, but how are we going to face Jesus when he does come? Will it be with our head held high in confidence or hung low with shame and embarrassment. <clears throat> My best friend growing up was an English collie. I spent more time with him than anybody else in life uh, in my grade school years and junior high years. When the cattle would get out the fence, we'd have to go corral them before they would get into the neighbor's crops and destroy them and that kind of thing. And my dog would just take off, oh boy, here we go, we get to chase cattle. But he would always, it seemed, chase them the wrong direction. So I would have to say, Laddie, Laddie, get back here, Laddie, like that. And he'd come crawling back, you know, all shamefaced. On the other hand, when I got home from school this time of year, September and October, it was three minutes in the house and out with a shotgun. And I'd, I'd pump it several times and my dog would just go like that and jump and I'd bark it and he grinned. How many of you know what I'm talking about, a dog that grins? Yeah, you, several of you have had the dogs that grin. Oh, he was all ready to go. Man, he was all in. That's the picture of a Christian who's been abiding in Christ. He can't wait. 
Jesus is coming. Isn't it going to be wonderful? He can look him in the face. The text says, and not be ashamed before him at his coming. And the word before him is actually away from. Is the, oppo is the word that's used there. And isn't that the picture? When I yelled at my dog, he, he, you know, he couldn't look me in the face. And that's, that's the picture. We'll be ashamed away from him. We, right, the head will be down. What a, what a fantastic picture of when Jesus is seen as somebody that we can use. We can use him to get us to heaven, but in the meantime, I, I want to do my own thing. I want to live independent of God, independent of Jesus. Sadly, many Christians live that way. <clears throat> I think the reality is, in this life, as Christians, we're either abiding in Christ or we're avoiding him. And there is no middle ground. We're either growing or we're declining. We're either abiding or we're living independent from him. And what John says, you want to be sure of your salvation. You want to walk in the fullness of God's joy. Abide in Christ. He's the focus. And he is our faith. It all begins and it ends with Jesus. In verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone practicing righteousness is born of him. We have a righteous God. It's about sin. Jesus saved us from our sin, and he is righteous. And once we walk with him for a time, we begin to anticipate the Lord's response in our life to life's challenges. It's a knowing that comes from familiarity. We know from reading scripture that God, that Jesus is altogether righteous. But in time we begin to know intuitively because of abiding with him that he is altogether righteous. And at the same time, one begins to quickly discern that those who truly know him walk in righteousness. Now this is not something that we're supposed to go around saying he's saved and he's not. He's got it together and he doesn't. That's not what God calls us to. He's just observing that it becomes very apparent that when you're abiding in Christ and you're walking with him, you're saved, you're, you're, you know the joy of being one of God's kids and you're walking in obedience and you're in fellowship with Jesus you intuitively know others that are also there. It's not five minutes that you're talking about what's important to both of you. That's what binds you. Bonds you is the person of the Lord Jesus. That's a fellowship that you find that crosses church barriers. The bond is Jesus, not theological agreement or denominational association. <clears throat> Does that mean then that those who are in Christ, walking in fellowship with him and abiding in him are, are perfect? No. But there's a value system. There is a shared attraction to each other and to the Lord, radically different from the world. There's an abhorrence of evil on the one hand 
and a love for people on the other hand. And you know, this is easily confused by many. Joe Sixpack, walking down the sidewalk, believes that his good works, his self-righteousness, will make him righteous before God. That's the common theology on the street. But what, Jesus, what John is talking about here is a righteousness that flows out of a new nature. It's not something that you put on, it's something that flows out. It's the chicken and the egg thing. Through self-righteous works, you don't become righteous. But he's talking about here a righteousness that God has imputed to our account, and that is the righteousness of Jesus. That's the righteousness that I'm going to offer the Father when I stand at heaven's door. Why should I let you, you in, Larry? I've seen how, you know, I've, I've watched you. You're anything but perfect. Ah, I'm in Christ. It's his righteousness that I offer. And because I have been declared righteous in Christ through faith in him, I can live righteously, true righteousness, that is the life of the Holy Spirit living out the life of Christ in and through. Now here's where it really begins to get good. Chapter 3, verse 1. The Father. Be, behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Now that translation just doesn't really get it. It's there. But what John is saying, exclamation, amazing. What manner of love the Father has bestowed on us. It's, what manner of love is this? Uh, maybe some of your translations say, what unearthly love. It's, what country does this love come from is the original idea that's written there. It's kind of like when Jesus walked on water, the disciples still didn't get it. And they said, what manner of man is this that can walk on water? Well, John's saying, what manner of love is this? It's, it's unearthly. It's, it's, it's incredible. It's nothing like I've ever experienced. David, in, the Psalm, in Psalm 8, had a similar feeling when he said, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that that you visit him, that you sent Jesus to make it possible for us to enter into eternal life. The love of the Father that sent Jesus to die for our sin is just unimaginable. And then, get this, he adds, Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. What he is saying here is that the world is really missing out that they don't have a clue who we are, what we stand for, what we're all about. They don't know us. And you know what? They're really missing out. I, I thought that surprised me. That, that is so cool. That because they do not know the Father, they don't know us. And that's really too bad. That's, that's sad. We're pretty cool. You know, we, we know Jesus. We're his kids. I, I, I don't know why, why he threw that in there, but I'm glad he did. It gets even gooder and gooder and gooder, not only now, but in the future. Based on our relationship, beloved now, we are children of God. 
But it has not yet been revealed fully what we shall be, but this much we do know, that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. In Romans chapter 8, verse 15, it says, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and of children then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If, if indeed we suffer with him, we may also be glorified together with him. It gets gooder, like I said. But it has not yet been revealed fully what we shall be. But this much we do know, that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Philippians is saying the much, much the same thing in Philippians 3, verse 20, where it says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus. And when he comes, when he appears, our body, our lowly body will be transformed conformed to his glorious body. And in Romans 8, again, verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. We're being changed into the same glory. We're going to be like Jesus when he comes. And, and I don't think we really can begin to appreciate what that's, what that's like. On the Mount of Transfiguration, it says that Jesus and Moses and Elijah, they shined like the brightness of the sun. They, they, they saw Jesus transfigured back into his glory state. And it says we're going to share in that glory. There's going to be the glory of God revealed in us. That is incredible. Most of you have heard me, me share how that in Daniel chapter 2, it uses the word, the Hebrew word zahar, that is a radiating light. And it says that we, in the resurrection, will shine as the sun and as the stars. And I believe it will be a perpetual glory radiating in and through us as it was reflected off the face of Moses when he came uh, out of the presence of the Lord, just reflected being in the presence of the Lord. But I believe that the glory that is going to be revealed in us is totally beyond our ability to comprehend. But it's going to be a great day when he comes, and there's going to be a glorious victory parade. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, it speaks about the triumpha of Christ, the, the celebratory, celebratory parade in downtown Rome when the conquering generals came. Paul said there's going to be a glorious triumph of Christ.
and we're going to be in his train. We're going to be in that parade uh, because when the trumpet sounds, the dead in Christ are going to be raised incorruptible. We who are alive and remain shall be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and when he returns, it says he's bringing the saints with him. We're going to be in that triumphant, and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. And guess what? Not only is Jesus going to be vindicated, no more scoffers, nobody laughing, ridiculing, or blaspheming. Every mouth will be shut. Every knee will be bowed and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And at the same time, every one of us in Christ will be vindicated. They won't be mocking anymore, you foolish Christians. The world thinks we're foolish. Not on that day. The natural consequences of all of this, there is a fruit. Verse 3, And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. There is a natural progressive process that happens when a believer abides in Christ. It has a purifying effect in one's life as we become more and more like Christ. That is a process that will be concluded when we get into his presence. But God's purpose is that we might be conformed to the image of Christ in the here and now. As we abide in Christ, we begin to reflect his characteristics, the characteristics of our progenitor. We are born again through faith in Christ as little children into the family of God. And that chip off the old block syndrome is what God wants for our lives, that we reflect the Lord Jesus. So what does all of this have to do with me, with you. We began by setting the table with tentative Tina and vivacious Vivian. As it applies to the Christian life, we are living by law, by rules, by performance, out of fear and obligation, trying to maybe appease. That's no relationship. Or we are living in Christ, abiding in him, resting at peace. We know what joy and enthusiasm is. We know the abiding joy even in the midst of heartache and tragedy. Courage in trials, secure and assured. I want to leave you with this. I say this from personal experience. And I think many of you here, too, could as well. I've known a lot of heartache. I've shared in a lot of tragedy with hundreds of people through the years, death and heartache and all of that. But I believe, from my experience and my own personal experience and the lives of other believers, that there is no one more miserable than one who is truly a Christian walking independent of God. Serving self, living for self, instead of 
in relationship with Jesus. Somehow we get the thinking we know better than God. And we go our own way, we do our own thing, and we live independent. And I know no one more miserable than one who persists in that kind of a lifestyle. Far more miserable than people out in the world. And so I leave you with this question. Are you abiding in Christ this morning? Or avoiding him? Abiding or avoiding? There really is no in between. And Father, I would pray that by your mercy and your grace, we would choose a lifestyle of obedience, of fellowship with you, abiding in your love, even as you, Lord Jesus, abided in the love of your Father. Your, your food was to do the will of him who sent him and to finish his work. Lord, might that be our food to know you, to do your will, to love you, to obey you, to abide in you, to commune with you before the word of God, that we might live with confidence and meet Jesus in the air confidently when he appears. And Father, for every one of us here this morning who perhaps have been living in that misery state of avoiding, walking independent, choosing to serve self over Jesus. Father, I pray that in your mercy and your grace and your love, it is the goodness of God that leads to repentance. And I would pray, Father, that any of us at any time to walk away in the misery of serving self, that the precious Holy Spirit would bring conviction and that, Father, we would be there with each other, supportive of one another, in the family, for any and all where this is true. May we, Father, abide, not avoid. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.